David Drummond and Austin Oyang are program directors of the Insight Data Engineering Fellows Program. David and Austin, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. So what is a data engineer? Well, uh, that is a um, that is a relatively new term that hasn't necessarily found like a single definition, um, but there are a lot of definitions that go around. So um, I, I guess we can answer what a data engineer is, but we can also say a little bit about what a data engineer isn't, um, and that might also be helpful. So uh, the most like um, at least in my opinion, uh, blunt definition is uh, a data engineer is someone who is uh, aiding a data scientist to um, actually uh, have an easier time working with the data. And uh, there, there's a common expression, which is, um, you know, a data scientist spends 80% of their time, um, you know, wrangling data or, uh, and the rest of the time uh, complaining about it. Um, but if there's a, if there's a good team of data engineers there, um, then that's not the case that, you know, the data engineer can help, um, build the pipelines that actually process some of the, um, do some of the uh, so-called ETL, the, the extract, transform and load, um, and also do some more sophisticated, you know, analytics and, and feature engineering, um, to kind of take out the, the, "Quote unquote grunt work uh, and allow the data scientists to really uh, focus on the business logic and um, you know the more interesting analysis." Would you say that like a data engineer is programming the applications for a data scientist to operate with, much like a software engineer is programming the applications for the end user to deal with? Uh, yeah, I think I think that's fair. Um, I guess one little difference I would say is that uh, sometimes a data engineer is working directly with an end user. So um, like it, it's a little bit between those. And in fact, like um, a data engineer, you could say is is a specialized software engineer who's specifically working on on data. And so sometimes that end user is you know your your customers and sometimes that end user is a internal customer uh, such as a you know analyst or a data scientist and what is the workflow of an average data engineer what are the tools that a data engineer is working with and the types of problems that a data engineer is tackling day to day yeah i think uh one of the important things for a data engineer to keep track of is actually as they're working um, in between like the data and also the data scientists um, or the end user is they need to be thinking about scalability and fault tolerance. Um, so if even if they're a data engineer at a smaller company where they may just be working with, say, like a MySQL database, um, they should be very forward thinking in terms of if this company is to continue to keep growing, um, like how they would actually want to scale out their infrastructure and also make it fairly seamless for both the end users, uh, whether it be data scientists um, or like an end consumer. And so at some companies... DevOps or operations or whatever the company likes to call their sort of next generation sysadmin type of roles. Um, these these people are, are in charge of managing some of the back end data data stack. Like I've worked at a couple places where the the people that were quote unquote DevOps were also in charge of doing some Hadoop configuration and um, this type of stuff. Does does a data engineer's work overlap with what has been maybe in the past five years or so referred to as DevOps? So I, I suppose there is, of course, um, 
some overlap, uh, but this kind of goes back to that point which I was saying earlier, which is, uh, you know, there's certain things that a data engineer isn't. And um, in the best case scenarios, I would say uh, doing nothing but DevOps or, or doing a significant amount of the DevOps is uh, something that would not hopefully fall into the, you know, responsibilities of the data engineer. Um, of course, you know, at smaller companies, Maybe that's the best person to, to take care of some of that stuff. But I think in larger companies, um, there is a little bit more of a division of labor. And it would be more, um, you know, writing the actual engineering, like writing the actual software uh, as opposed to configuring and doing uh, the DevOps. Um, but there's certainly, like, it's certainly the case that a data engineer should, you know, know their way around um, some of the uh, configurations and the actual DevOps and, and be comfortable tweaking those things to, to optimize. How has data engineering changed from the previous methods of, you know, like ETL and data warehousing, these terms that have been around for a while, what is new about data engineering? Yeah, so, I mean, I think um, as Austin was was describing before, the, the main difference is that we now have these specialized systems like Hadoop and Spark um, and, and new ones that are emerging all the time. Um, and these, you know, NoSQL databases that uh, are more and more replacing the, the old, um, you know, relational data warehouses. Um, and, and these tools are becoming more specialized and they are distributed. And uh, because of, you know, advances and, in, in, you know, the price and uh, capabilities of like memory and SSDs. Um, these are there is becoming a, a new um, kind of specialized uh, approach to actually working with these tools. And you know you need someone who who is going to focus specifically on how to get these distributed systems to work. How to make sure that um, you know when a node goes down as you know, if you have a hundred nodes, uh, it's inevitable that uh, one of them is eventually going to go down. And so, when that does happen, you need someone who's very familiar with those. And so, what used to be done, you know, with a traditional like ETL job that could be kind of managed um, and ran, you know, in a relatively simple way, uh, it's becoming a much more complicated uh, process. And so, I think the modern data engineer needs to understand these intricacies of a distributed system um, in addition to how to like, you know, actually run these ETL jobs. So we've got the increase in distributed systems importance, and we've also got this shift towards uh, a more, um, a wider variety of technologies that we're using. Um, you know, I think about streaming frameworks um, and like over the past decade, Many companies have built out their big data stacks with mostly like a focus on Hadoop MapReduce and and the rest of the Hadoop stack. Um, but Hadoop MapReduce has kind of been getting replaced by uh, stream stream processing frameworks. What is the motivation for that? What are the problems with Hadoop MapReduce? Yeah, I think um, I would like one of the pain points, I guess, in uh, Hadoop MapReduce is that it works great on a lot of data, but one of the problems is that a lot of um, each process of when it's doing the mapping and the reducing, it's all working with uh, the hard drive itself. So every time it does a process, it must read it, read from it, and then at, and then after it does the processing, also write it back in. 
Um, this iteration does will take a long time, especially if you have specific algorithms that need to iterate on a very large data set over and over again, maybe like thousands of times. And it could take maybe even weeks to compute. Um, so now people are trying to mo move more into uh, one is it more into the memory uh, computing or even just like the stream style of computing. Um, and with memory getting cheaper as well, um, it seems like uh, that's kind of where the industry or a lot of people are trying to move towards if these types of frameworks that can um, quickly do iterations on very large data sets. And this can include like Spark and Flink. And so if I want to add streaming functionality into my straight up batch uh, batch processing framework, just Hadoop, MapReduce. Is this the type of thing that uh, that I will need to be doing as a data engineer? Is this my responsibility to uh, to add the streaming functionality to a all batch framework? Yeah, I think it's part of the data engineer's responsibility to also <laughs> like evaluate uh, these tools. So. Um, it is always very scary to just uh, say, let's go ahead and migrate completely over to a specific technology. Um, so I think it was definitely part of the data engineer's role to try out uh, various tools, um, kind of like beta test them to see how well they can potentially work in production. Um, and then by benchmarking them uh, against other streaming technologies and, whether, and decide if it's worth the manpower time to actually get it up and running um, to move, move that through. Um, and depending on the company size, I would say is uh, data engineer may be um, the one who needs to do all the DevOps to actually get that up and running. Uh, but essentially, I would think that it'd be better to offsource that to a DevOps team as well to take care of security. Yeah, and and in terms of like you know making sure that uh, there's an actual use case and um, an appropriate use case for streaming specifically, I think. You know, that's something that the, the data engineer would have to work very closely with the data scientists to, to figure out, you know, does this algorithm actually um, need streaming? Like, you know, is, is there actually a need to have something, you know, up and running and have it, like, updated every five seconds or, you know, every, you know, 50 milliseconds or whatever that actual latency demands are? I think it's very important to figure those out. Um, and it's also very important to understand, like, the algorithm that's that's going to be used, whether it's some you know rather simple, um, you know, effectively just division, or if it's some really complex you know deep learning machine learning technique, um, you know, whether or not that's actually possible in a streaming framework is is a non trivial thing, and I think that's why a data scientist would have to work closely with a data engineer to actually implement these things and, and move them to production uh, quality, because. Yeah, what works with a small data set uh, doesn't necessarily scale. And one of the approaches that I've seen with these batch and streaming developments is the Lambda architecture. Um, what are your guys' thoughts on the Lambda architecture? And do you do you teach this as a way to to deal with different latency requirements across a big data stack? Yeah, so we definitely um, teach that in the court, uh, in in like the the fellowship program. Uh, we don't try to push all the fellows to uh, move towards that, but it's something that we bring up in terms of if you do need uh, like less like subsecond latency um, to understand uh, what the lambda architecture is, um, and basically not kind of take it for granted too. Uh, we explain to them just uh, the complexities that arise from basically trying to combine 
the batch processing and the streaming process. And they kind of get the idea of that it is not a trivial process as well. Yeah. Could you define the Lambda architecture and uh, talk about what problem it solves? Yeah, sure. So um, essentially, the problem in the past was that you have some batch job that runs in the background, and it may maybe like to take uh, several hours uh, for it to compute. So as I get some streaming data that comes in that maybe like every, you get maybe like hundreds or maybe thousands of events that happen every single second, um, I may want to know what is happening right exactly right now, right? So in that case, I wouldn't have the most up-to-date information if I just run the simple batch job. So it's more of using the streaming process to kind of enhance uh, the batch processing, uh, basically to provide, uh, do the calculations for the most uh, recent data that has just come in, and you merge the batch and the real time together so that you can get the most, the best, the cl- clearest picture of what is going on right now. Um, but with this, uh, sometimes the, the real time process. Um, it could be doing some sort of approximation. And you may also be accumulating errors along the way too. Um, so with this Lambda architecture, since the batch job uh, always runs over all of the data, then it will always uh, recorrect itself every time it recomputes again. Um, so it's, it's the fact that the batch job has this huge, lat- this, uh, huge latency to compute um, and trying to combine that with the streaming, streaming layer uh, can be quite challenging. Yeah, and to to elaborate, I I think it's worth focusing because I, I know a lot of people who discuss the Lambda architecture just uh, you know say it's you know it's it's mixing the the streaming and the batch and that that's all there is to it. But this this aspect that Austin was speaking to um, of of actually recalculating on your entire data set um, that that has many advantages. So that helps you with problems that. Um, you know, require you to look at all your data sets. So if, if you're trying to find um, the number of unique users and it's possible that, you know, some users have multiple logins or multiple email addresses, um, that's really something that requires you to look at your entire data set in, a, as a whole. And so the Lambda architecture fits very well for that. Um, the other thing is if you introduce like bugs into your code, which as, you know, any software engineer knows this is pretty much inevitable. Uh, the Lambda architecture automatically corrects for this by, you know, recalculating. Um, like if there was a bug introduced, you just fix the bug and then you can recalculate on the entire data set. But um, so the, the other aspect of this is this so-called human fault tolerance. It doesn't just account for if nodes, you know, make a mistake, but if, if you know, software engineers make a mistake um, or if business logic changes, you can easily recalculate. And uh, this works very well with the, with the Lambda architecture. There are some criticisms of the Lambda architecture. Like I know it's been called into question by Jay Kreps, who is the one of the creators of Apache Kafka, um, and one of the replacements uh, for the Lambda architecture or, or, or adjustments to it has been called the Kappa architecture. Um, so, what are the what are the flaws of the Lambda architecture and um, what are the uh, the amendments to it that people like Jay Kreps espouse? Yeah, so I mean, one obvious, uh, and I don't know if you flaw might be too strong, but like uh, an obvious setback or a drawback is, um, you know, if if you don't have data that needs to be recalculated or where it's useful um, to look at the entire data set all at once, then like you know, if you're just trying to 
um, you know, count, for example, if, if you're just counting, it doesn't hurt to just add in your, your new entries. You don't have to go back and look at the entire data set to, to figure out what the new count is when, a, when more data comes in. You just add it on. Um, if you do have something like that, then, then this is perhaps a little bit overkill. Um, and then the obvious, the obvious downside is that, um, so that is to say Lambda architecture you know, it might be like a, it might work for everything, but there's some use cases where it's perhaps overkill. And the downside to that is now you have to maintain, um, you know, streaming code and also batch code. Now, there are frameworks called, you know, for example, um, Twitter has the Summingbird project, which um, helps you do this, that you write, you know, one abstraction of code and like it gets turned into both uh, real time or both streaming and batch uh, code, it, it gets implemented for you. But one of the real downsides is having to maintain and write two separate code bases. Um, yeah, so what I think, you know, the, the idea behind the, the Kappa architecture is that, you know, you can ignore the batch system altogether and just have one simple system, the, the streaming framework, um, that takes care of everything for you. And I think previously this had been, uh, you know, a lot of people would have said this is not possible, but I think new technologies and, you know, the, 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 the fact that streaming technologies are getting better is making this more and more possible. Yeah. Mm. And I think that's also like the, the, the use case. So if you're a company that uh, doesn't do much analytics of like maybe two years ago, um, it may be worthwhile to go towards the pure uh, Kappa architecture. Uh, you can have a full streaming uh, storage, um, and you can calculate things as they come in in, in real time, uh, but there's no need to store data that's much, much older than stuff that you would ever need to train, train your system on. Um, so compared to like other systems where you do want to look at five or ten years ago, um, you need to, at that point, batching may be something that's one, is easier to wrap your head around to. I was just at a conference called QCon, and there were so many talks about all these different streaming frameworks. There was like Spark, Flink, Samza, Storm, Stylus, um, Heron. Uh, There were just like so many. Do you guys have a good idea for how these vary or which ones you should choose for different circumstances? Or, um, you know, I guess when you teach data engineering at Insight, maybe uh, the idea is, like you said, more to just compare, uh, you know, you want to teach the engineers to be able to, to compare these different frameworks. I don't know, what are your what are your thoughts on this vast multiplicity? Yeah, that, that's definitely something that we always uh, keep battling with. Um, so in a, at least in uh, our point of view, we always try to keep things as simple as possible. So I would say in the streaming world, um, we tell the fellows that they should see it as more of what do they actually need. So with Spark Streaming, for example, um, that's more of a, it works still on a batch framework, but it's doing this sort of micro-batching. Um, but with that, that means that you can only get down to a certain, a, like you have a latency threshold, which is probably about half a second um, at, be- at best, essentially. So if you need to keep updating uh, results in like half a second or more, then Spark Streaming could probably do the job for you. Um, however, if you need something, something that's much uh, lower in latency, for example, like if you're in an ad tech um, and you need to be able to provide the correct ads uh, to a specific website within um, like microseconds, um, then Spark Streaming is, is going to fall behind too fast. 
Um, at that point, you're going to be needing other technologies, which are more of these uh, pure streaming. Um, it's basically for each record that comes in, you do a computation and you just get an output uh, immediately. Um, so this includes like Storm. Um, I think Flink falls in this category as well. Um, and it's up to like, we want the fellows to take that into strong consideration in terms of how to pick those kind of technologies. Now, within those subsets, um, they would have to look more into detail of what are the benefits and the trade-offs for that. Yeah, and and I mean to to like you know I know there are new technologies and um, you know there there this is always the case with data engineering and and part of that is comes from our, our you know I think the data engineers um, are fully adopting the open source mentality but because of that there's like new tools emerging all the time. Um, I think if you want to like just put it down to a short list, I think that Spark Streaming and Storm are kind of the go-to technologies. Um, and with this division that Austin just described of you know true streaming versus micro batching, and then um, I, I personally I'm just really excited about the the Flink project, which um, unlike Spark, which kind of operates in the batch framework and then also has this micro batching. Uh, Flink is a stream processing at its heart that can also happen to do batch processing. So um, I'm, I'm really excited about uh, Flink, but uh, it, it's still it still hasn't been widely adopted so far. Yeah, it's so funny uh, what you guys said about um, the ad tech use case. Um, literally the last interview that I conducted, I'm not sure when this one will air. Um, I might just air it right before this one, but was an interview with this ad tech uh, company where he, he was talking about contrasting the different streaming frameworks and he literally said like so like early on they leveled it down to storm and spark and they're like weighing the different trade-offs between the two and they're like well ultimately we're an ad tech company and spark has this problem of micro batching and literally it's the same example that you just gave so uh, it's pretty pretty funny um interesting so i mean these different streaming frameworks, they define the processing aspect of data engineering, but there's also storage. What what are the storage technologies and principles that data engineers need to know about? Yeah, well, you know, this is this is one of those difficult things. And um, I guess at, at a high level, there's two main uh, use cases for, for storage. Um, the first is uh, distributed file systems. And I think the clear winner here is, you know, the Hadoop file system. Um, not not to be confused with, you know, Hadoop's MapReduce framework, but the the half of Hadoop that is, you know, in charge of, uh, you know, taking large files, chopping them up into chunks, and uh, replicating those in a distributed fashion, so it is fault tolerant. Um, I think. Those uh, distributed file systems, like you know a normal file system, they're great for very unstructured data. Like you can literally put whatever you want in there. Um, they're great for uh, basically serving as a source of truth. That is to say, you take your most raw data and you just dump it into a place like Hadoop file system, or um, if you want to use uh, you know Amazon's S3. I think that's another great alternative. Um, but you just take your raw data and you dump it in there, and then you can do some further processing. 
the downside to file systems like that is that ultimately um, that flexibility and that durability uh, comes with complexity. And so when you want to actually access the data, um, you're, you're going to get it in you know, seconds instead of you know, milliseconds. It, it, it's relatively slow. So then the other major class of storage um, would be your databases or you know, generally speaking, uh, data stores. It depends how you want to uh, classify it. But uh, distributed databases, uh, tools, you know, common ones that come to mind are, um, you know, the ones that are based off of uh, Google's Bigtable, which is, um, you know, things like uh, Apache Cassandra or uh, HBase. Uh, then you have, you know, more like search-oriented tools like Elasticsearch, which uh, allow you to do um, some pretty amazing things with both geospatial data, but also, of course, uh, text-based data. Um, and the main idea behind these technologies is that um, you give off, you know, and, and I guess these all fall under the realm of uh, NoSQL um, you know, not only SQL, um, you, you give away some of that flexibility and you find a technology that, because of the way it indexes, um, is really tailored to one or two specific use cases. And so that, that is the difficulty is that you now have to tailor the storage, um, at least for the database, um, to a specific use case. And maybe you might even have more than one database or more than one um, you know, way that you're using your, your, you know, different queries require different use cases, um, different access patterns. And so you might need to optimize um, much, much more and, and kind of tailor to a specific database. And so with that said, I think most applications actually use a little bit of both, um, both the file system to store the raw data, but then you would do some, some, you know, some uh, aggregations or some counting, and then you'd store those those aggregated results in a database for quick access for either you know the data scientist or end user. Got it. <clears throat> yeah, there was actually uh, another talk at uh, QCon that Uber gave, uh, and I'm hoping to have the guy that gave it on the show. But um, he was talking about uh, using Elasticsearch, just as as you described it. Um, as kind of the storage layer in in the Lambda architecture. Um, so let's shift from talking about data engineering uh, in terms of what it actually is to data engineering in terms of where it fits in organizationally and um, and you know the, how how big the demand for data engineers is. And um, so data engineering mostly occurs at bigger organizations that have scaled and they have tons of data to manage and engineer. So if I'm an employee and I'm not at one of these companies that has like a Titanic data set, like, uh, you know, a Google or a um, Facebook or something, um, I mean, how, how do I learn data engineering? Is there uh, is there a good way to to learn these skills if I'm not at a company that requires data engineers? Yeah, so I guess I mean, of course, there's there's an obvious use case for those larger companies. Um, what we're starting to see, you know, when we go out and talk to the the industry, is that there's actually a, a pretty compelling use case even for medium or small companies. And I mean, I think we know many many data engineers who are on companies that you know. Are, are under 20 people. Um, and, and part of that is not just the size of the company, but the size of the amount of data you have. But, um, 
you know, anytime you, you have a use case for a data scientist, you also have a use case for a data engineer to, to help enable that data scientist to, you know, not have to do the context switching of, of dealing with the engineering and some of the other things. So um, I guess there, there's always kind of a use case, but coming back to your question a little bit more, um, how does one actually tackle and, and like learn these things if you are at a smaller company? I think our whole philosophy and the philosophy behind Insight is that the only way you learn about these things is just by like trying to develop a proof of concept project where you you find, you know, you think about what the use case is where you actually need these tools um, and then you, you know, just start exploring it and, and building these things. Uh, the great thing about these technologies is they're all open source. So it's relatively easy to get started and um, you can just start, you know, building out a product that actually helps your company and, and that, um, you know, uses some of these technologies and pretty quickly you'll realize um, like you you will learn by effectively doing uh, as opposed to just trying to like wait until a proper use case or a uh, uh, something comes up like there's actually a, a good fit for just uh, you know building a project that that leverages some of these ideas and concepts yeah and I would also uh, second that in terms of um, if somebody doesn't want to start with say distributed technologies right off the bat or like say to deploy things distributed because it's not it's not a trivial thing. Um, like uh, all these open source uh, technologies, they can just download onto their local computer, and in most cases, they have some sort of local mode, so they can run just on like your own Mac or your PC, um, and it's enough to at least get around to playing with the API, uh, figuring out how they work. Um, of course, you won't get the full effect in terms of how effective are they at scale, um, but once you're once you are ready actually to move into that, um, you could use other services such as like I. I uh, believe like Am Amazon Web Services, Azure, uh, Google Cloud Compute. Um, and I know uh, I'm much more familiar with Amazon, but you could even use uh, spot instances, which are basically like you just put a bid price, and then um, as long as that bid price doesn't get hit, your instance stays alive. And that will cut down the cost of uh, instances that you want to spin up by almost by sometimes even tenfold. Um, so you could, you could be looking at like a four-node cluster. You could probably only be paying about... I don't know, maybe like 12 or 13, 12 or 12 to 20 bucks a month or something like that. Um, and you actually have a live cluster there. So you could test out um, technologies such as Spark and trying to write to a Cassandra cluster as well. Um, and then you can you can really feel the full effects there. Um, there's a lot of uh, very like large data sets out there that are open on Amazon S3, which you could try to read that in to your cluster, um, try to do some computation and try to write it out somewhere else. Um, and um, sure enough, uh, you will most likely encounter some problems that you would have never even considered um, when it was just done on a local machine. Okay, that's really cool. That's, those are some great suggestions for how to get started um, on our own. There's also Insight Data Engineering, which you, you guys are working on. Um, and I'd love to get an idea for how the Insight Data Engineering Fellows Program works and I think one good way would be for David to discuss this because David, you you actually went through the program before you joined Insight as an employee. Um, could you briefly describe your experience at Insight and uh, you know talk about what about the experience made you want to join the company? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, although I will I will caveat that Austin uh, was also a fellow here, so. Um, Oh, you can yeah. get his experience as well, but um, I, yeah, uh, it, it's a it's a common recurring theme that we we 
we love to have people who are very familiar with the with our uh, experience by getting some of our, our fellows that go through the program and, and uh, grabbing them onto our program. Um, yeah, so I was actually coming from uh, a, a more academic background, and the Insight Data Engineering program is, is specifically tailored to two sorts of candidates. Um, those who are coming from academic backgrounds like myself and are, are really looking to break into the industry as a whole, and then also experienced software engineers who maybe have been doing, you know, engineering in general. Um, we, we've had diverse fellows from all sorts of fields, um, system administration, uh, front end, uh, you know, database administrators. And they're just looking to learn and get their hands on these technologies. Um, but back to my, my specific experience, um, I came from the world of physics and um, I was working on uh, in a PhD program on quantum computing, um, which I found you know absolutely fascinating, and I'm still really interested in. But uh, you know, is as you've probably heard, like five years out, um, and I, I was told that like ten years ago. So um, <laughs> what I you know, I wanted to go into the industry and, and really work on something that's much more applied um, and will have a real world impact right now. And so, um, you know, I had quite a bit of experience with uh, distributed computing, but, you know, on like a, uh, on, in a really like a, not, not like a big um, distributed system like, like you see and hear about for like Hadoop, but just like, you know, running parallel computing and, and using some of those, uh, you know, open source technologies from the 90s. Um, and I had applied that in my, you know, kind of simulations on my research projects, but didn't really get the experience with the, the tools that are actually being used in the industry right now. And so um, when I went through the program, uh, basically, the way it works is you build a project over the course of four weeks. And um, just as I was saying earlier, you, you have this um, you, you basically build a proof of concept um, for a given technology or a given um, platform that you're trying to build. So for, for me, the platform that I chose was to analyze all of the um, U.S. patent um, data. So, you know, there's going back to the 70s, there's, there's this wide um, and, and very messy source of data and um, for my project, what I chose to do was to actually uh, clean up all this data um, and then, you know, develop some sort of basic analysis so that you could actually uh, build really cool tools that allowed you to either analyze, um, you know, where, where innovation is coming from geographically. You can kind of slice and dice the data. Or you can imagine building something like uh, a Twitter, but for patents. So every single time someone, um, you know, uh, Every single time Googie, uh, Google, uh, you know, posted a patent or something like that, you would you would get a alert. Um, so I, I found this, you know, of course, this is maybe an interesting interesting topic for me. But um, what it really did was it allowed me to uh, build, you know, it's kind of just a, a tool for me to actually get to learn these technologies and build something. And what Insight did was provided me the resources and the guidance um, from from mentors like you know. Um, Nathan Mars, for example, who, you know, the, the inventor of the Lambda architecture would come in and actually, you know, tell us exactly what that is and um, would, would guide us in our projects. And so uh, I really enjoyed that process and uh, that gave me the ability to actually learn these technologies in a very focused and self-directed way. And then additionally, one thing I would say is that 
Uh, our program really also focuses on the diversity of our fellows. So we try to bring in people from all sorts of different backgrounds. And what that allows us to do is really learn in a collaborative way. So um, anytime I got stuck on something, I know that I can just, you know, reach out to one of the people going through the program or perhaps one of the alumni who is who, who went through the program in the past and things that used to take me like a day of reading a book or, you know, I would just get stuck on for, you know, hours. I could just talk to my neighbor, you know, my fellow fellow and learn these things in, you know, just a matter of minutes. And so that was a really valuable aspect. So, you know, Insight is, of course, a program, but it's also a community of people that you can always go to and get help for um, if, if you get stuck on anything. So as you've said, Insight is this entirely self-directed, project-based learning. What's the motivation for for this self-directed process rather than than having classes? Like, talk about that in more detail because that seems seems pretty uh, like almost heretical, but it's it's really interesting to me. Yeah. So uh, when I first joined the program, I was um, actually slightly skeptical about uh, the way the teaching was going to go, because um, it's all self-directed, just like you said. And um, so I was always the kind of person that would always just bang my head against the wall till I figured it out. Um, and going through the program, I started realizing very quickly that that wasn't going to work um, and that I would have to ask my neighbor for help. Um, and I always refer back to like the types of projects that I worked on, like my personal projects that I've done at home um, in terms of like those timelines. And they would usually take like several months for me to like get those hashed out. Uh, getting them those projects ramped up just took a lot of time and making a lot of mistakes, um, which uh, nobody was here to guide me, essentially. Um, but after going through the program, I realized that I would never have been able to accomplish uh, the project that I was that I built in the program um, had I not been around uh, the types of people that were around me at at insight. Um, so I think like one of the biggest things is this collaborative learning style of like we do not try to take people of just like one particular background. But having people of expert expertise from all various backgrounds uh, definitely helped a lot. Um, I was able to ask people about front end, uh, which I had not done any front end uh, programming before. I um, was able to get that through within pretty much one evening, um, which I think if I did it on my own would probably take me over a week. Um, and so, so that really opened my eyes in terms of um, how beneficial Insight was, at least to me and to also other fellows too. Yeah, I've talked to several boot camps uh, doing interviews, and the median time for these boot camps seems to be about 13 weeks, but Insight Data Engineering takes only seven weeks. Does this have to do with the with the project-based learning, or why, why is Insight like half the time of another boot camp? Yeah, and I, I should even cut that down even further because the, the actual time we spend on the projects is actually, uh, let's say the first four weeks. And even then it's a, the, the first part of the first week is, is actually choosing a project. So the amount of time someone has actually spent, uh, you know, doing their technical project is actually, uh, less than a month for sure. So it, I think we do have a very high, um, a high bar for the sort of technical abilities coming into the program. And I think that's what might separate us from some of uh, some other boot camps, which I think are trying to take people from, from, you know, maybe not zero to 60, but, you know, very, very low bar. Um, people who come into our program do have several years of experience programming. And I think that helps. 
Um, but I really do think that the project-based approach is the way that really drives you to get something done. Um, we kind of work on weekly sprints where at the end of each week, um, you have some end product. Uh, you know, at the first week, it's, it's producing an MVP. And then from there on, you know, you, you have iterations. But basically, you, you are really pushing yourself and, and you're pushed by this uh, collaborative process of, of seeing what other people are doing to really get things accomplished in a short amount of time. And I mean, the other thing that we, I, I guess something that we really value and a part of the reason why we don't have classes per se is we really want people to learn how to evolve with the field. Um, data engineering and, and anything that you know, is, is tied to the open source community is something that's going to evolve very, very quickly. I mean, as we saw, like when I very first started, maybe like a year and a half ago, um, Spark was, you know, a very, very like nascent thing. And I, I mean, it's been around for a while, but it wasn't quite being used in production anywhere. Um, and now it's very well established in just a very short amount of time. And so uh, I think we look for people who are, um, going to be self-motivated, who are going to be self-directed, and who are going to work on whatever is interesting to them. And, and we don't try to dictate, like, you know, now we're going to have a class on Hadoop, or now we're going to have a class on this. Uh, we want people to be able to pick up whatever tool it is and really push themselves to get something done with it in a short amount of time. Because I think that's that's ultimately what they, they need to do as a data engineer in the industry. So throughout these conversations I've had with people from boot camps, um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about higher education and, um, you know, you see these 13 week or seven or four week education programs versus college, which is like, you know, five year education program. Um, and a lot of times I come out of these interviews just feeling like, gosh, like why, why is college the de facto thing? Um, and I, I think maybe people sometimes misconstrue me as like being really critical of college. But um, in fact, I'm more just thinking in terms of like, you have college, this extremely long five-year thing, and then you have these boot camp. And, and by the way, you know, many people with degrees uh, still have trouble getting jobs. And then you have these boot camps that are like 13 weeks or four weeks uh, and people consistently can get jobs out of them. Um, or maybe you guys would have something else to say about that. Maybe that's not necessarily true. But um, in any case, I feel like there is this giant unexplored gradient of education paths that people could pursue between these two polar ends of the time spectrum. So um, I'm curious where you guys see education going like uh you know computational education as as an increasing amount of the workforce needs to know some form of computer science or data engineering um you know where where are we going with this stuff yeah so from my perspective uh, when i uh, went into college um like I, I did my undergrad in electrical engineering um i've always loved physics and and that's something that i wanted to do um, and related with electronics as well. Um, but I kind of treated college as the place where I could learn how to learn, um, regardless of what the topic was, really. Um, and I think that's where a lot of students will actually gain that maturity of being thrown into this big pool of with, uh, with other students. You have to learn new topics. Um, you have a lot of classes. Um, and yes, there is value, of course, in terms of what it is that you're actually studying. But to me, what was a bigger value was 
every single semester picking up something new and basically starting from almost nothing. Um, and then by the end of the semester, uh, basically knowing a lot about it or even before that too. Um, and then I think that carries over even when you work into industry or even go into academia is not being afraid of learning new things. Um, I think everyone should be have this like this curiosity and this kind of hunger um, to d- it doesn't matter like what field you're pursuing, but you, you should be wanting to learn more. Um, and I think that's kind of where um, you can develop that. And that's in college, I think, uh, whereas these um, and I think that translates over into a lot of these other programs, which are these much more short term um, education programs where you do need to have this type of hunger. And if you if you aren't curious, like it, it's still not going to work um, like the these other boot camps uh, can try to feed, spoon feed you these this material. But if you don't have this desire to learn, um, no, no one else can do it for you. Um, so so that that's just my take on it. Yeah. And, and I think. Maybe the the reason why we see kind of this um, this dichotomy of like you know you have really short programs and then you have you know long academic um, and and for me you know covering you know a decade um, but I, I think the reason why you might not see something in the middle is that there are people who come out of you know high school or, or you know. What, after working for a few years and already have that hunger and just, you know, really want to um, learn these things very quickly and start using them in the in the real world and solving those challenges, um, like, very quickly. And I think there's other people who still want to go through that more didactic process and, um, you know, get, get that experience of, of really learning um, from the, you know, the, the kind of uh, one-to-many experience of, of being in a classroom environment. Um, and I think there's value to both of those. And, and some, you know, certain people will probably gravitate towards more than other. Um, but I think there, it's really interesting to see this new development of, of, you know, educational models that are rethinking the traditional academic, academic one. And I think, um, you know, there, there is really interesting growth in that middle area. Um, I, I just don't know uh, exactly who would be the person who wants to pursue something like, uh, you know, a, a two-year version or something like that of of insight. Which I, I would say, like, uh, the other thing about these programs is is they're very intense, and so part of the reason why we we limit ours to a relatively short amount of time is. Um, it would be very tricky to do one of these things uh, for two years straight. I think that would be, uh, you'd learn a lot, but you would also maybe burn out. One of the things I think about with these four weeks or seven weeks or 13 weeks things where people can learn so quickly, um, it makes me really question the these conventional ideas we have about um, like brain plasticity, where we where we kind of say like, oh, you can only learn at such a blistering pace if you're if you're super young. Um, but yet, I see people who are who are older who are going through these types of programs, and they seem to have a lot of success. Um, what do you guys think about that, Dick? Do you think there's a do you think we have a, a an underestimation of the human capacity to to reformat our careers and our educations yeah and i think i I think that is a very uh interesting point and um i I should also say like you know our program 
we we've had people who come in with you know uh, you know straight out of their undergraduate degree, and then other people who have been working in the industry for thirty years, and um, you know they both seem to learn at the same rate. Uh, I think everyone. When it comes to, to picking up new things and, and working with technologies in a very hands-on way, I think everyone can learn. I, I, I don't even think it's about age. I think it's about um, the, the amount of interaction you have with the material that you're trying to learn. I think if you're just like listening to someone else or you're just reading it in a book, it, it becomes very easy to uh, – I, I think that that's something that is not uh, – it's the interactive nature of it that makes it much more um, easier to learn at, at any age. Um, I don't know. That's 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 how I feel. I, I really enjoy, um, and as I look back on my career, I think like every few years I have tried to like you know quote unquote reinvent myself or or like really learn a new subject. And for me, that's that's been something I've always been attracted to, and I, I imagine I will continue to do. It's the blessing and curse of the millennial, as they say. <laughs> so, sure. So, you know, um, I think it's interesting. Like, I, I've I've seen some enrollment stats. I think on on these boot camps and uh, the number of data scientists that are being churned out, and all I've seen is just like kind of uh, up and to the right. Um, have you guys seen like an increase in the number of applications or has it started to flatten out or how do you see this macroscopically? Like um, are, are are the applicants uh, still increasing or has it leveled out? So we still see it increasing. I think there was originally an explosion and, you know, the, the story behind Insight, which was which was originally geared for, for PhDs, was that there was this problem of, you know, PhDs who could, you know, really, really smart people trying to get jobs, but, you know, couldn't. There was clearly not enough academic positions. Um, and at the same time, there was, you know, all these people looking for really smart, uh, technically inclined people. And, um, you know, they, they found really smart people, but they didn't quite have experience with the tools. And, you know, Insight started as a way to bridge that gap. And so originally we saw that, like, you know, it was actually a very small number of, of companies that were actually open to this new position of, you know, at the time wasn't even really named a data scientist. But um, what we saw was, you know, there was certainly a huge number of people who wanted to get into the field of data science. So like on the uh, supply side, there was certainly no, no um, dearth there. But on the um, industry side, there was, there's, kind of uh, a relatively small number, but then as the years went by and as this new position kind of evolved and people understood that, we've seen the demand on that also increase. And so what we've seen is, you know, pretty much sustained growth for both uh, the people who want to get involved in the program um, from the fellow side, but also the, peop- the, the companies that want to work with us um, and are, who are looking for these uh, data scientists and data engineers. And so, so far, we, we haven't seen any uh, drop in that and uh, things have, you know, kept going up and to the right, as you say. Um, I, I would hope, you know, that things would balance out at some point and that that would, you know, there wouldn't be a, a uh, just like continued imbalance because I think generally speaking from like a economic perspective, it's better if, if things um, do level out and, and people go into the field. But um, so far we haven't seen that yet and it's, it's pretty interesting to see if it will keep going up. 
Yeah, it's also very interesting. Um, like, so we've um, also been able to do a lot of interviews with you applicants as well. Um, but since I joined, I've uh, done, I think, about two rounds of interviews uh, for the program. But we're definitely seeing a very common trend of the people who are applying. Um, like, they're getting a much better understanding of these tools, um, much better than I was when I first came into this program as well. Um, so I, I feel like a lot of this information of these distributed technologies and working with big data um, is becoming, the, the barrier to entry is decreasing. Um, so it seems like it's uh, becoming more like the more layman will be able to understand a lot of these tools um, without being like this uh, over, overly special technology thing. Mm. So at Insight, you guys started off with data science uh, and then it expanded to a data engineering track. What's next for Insight? Are there more projects in the works? Yeah, so we actually have um, a third track, which we, we just started, um, which is the health data science. Um, it's still kind of, um, you know, within the, the realms of data science. Um, but we have a, a program in Boston now, which is specifically tailored uh, for data scientists looking to make an impact in the health field. Um, and that's, that's a really exciting area um, that I think is, is worth keeping an eye on. Um, so that, so that's one aspect. And then, you know, it's, Austin is actually pioneering another one, which we're, we're also very excited about. Yeah. So another, um, thing that we're working on is, uh, we have a lot of people that have been working in industry already. Um, a lot of them have, have no intention of moving into like other industries. They're work, already working as data scientists and data engineers. Uh, but their stack, uh, their technology stack may already be fixed. So a lot of them want to just keep improving in terms of how they do data science and also data engineering. So we've started these uh, data labs, which are essentially these workshops um, to help data scientists and data engineers keep learning about new topics. Um, so we have uh, two topics right now. Uh, one of them is the data visualization data labs, which will be um, we're hosting in New York City um, and on December 10th and 11th, which will basically uh, teach people who want to learn more about how to visualize their data. Um, and we've uh, run a couple of these already in the Silicon Valley. It's been very successful. A lot of data scientists uh, really enjoy the program, um, get to work with D3, uh, do some analysis, and uh, figure out also how to describe that data story. Um, and the other one that we're running um, on December 7th and 8th in New York City is the uh, Spark Workshop. Um, for those people that um, particularly are interested in Spark, uh, and want to learn the basics of the how Spark infrastructure is organized. Um, also, for people that are engineers or data scientists that may already have a Spark uh, stack, but just haven't really had the chance to start working with it. Um, so, what we want to do is are these are just simple uh, two day sessions where they get to pretty much get their hands dirty, uh, start working with Spark clusters or uh, working with their data visualizations. Um, so that when they go back to work, they can basically just hit the ground running um, and uh, start uh, start working with their clusters and so on. Yeah, and the, the exciting thing about both these new programs is it, it takes the same core idea that um, the best way and the quickest way to learn these these topics is to just start building a tool. And um, you know, both of these are you know, in the data labs in particular, again, they're they're not didactic. There's not you know, classes per se, it's really a, a you know, self-directed uh, project-based approach. And because these people are already familiar with the field, there's a, you know, we, we feel like, and we have seen that it can be a very short program and you still get a lot of, a lot out of it. So um, we're, we're really excited about this, this project-based self-directed way of learning and, and uh, really excited to see what sort of uh, uh, directions we can take it and 
have it work very well. Awesome. Well, David Drummond and Austin Uyang, thanks for coming out to Software Engineering Daily. It's been fantastic talking to you. I really enjoyed it. All right. Thank you very much. Yeah, I think it's been, it's been great.